something new. There's a glass of water already up here. <laughs> you learn something new every day. Fantastic. Thanks for whoever put that there. All right, good morning, everyone. Would you join me in prayer one more time? Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us all together. Thank you for the signs of spring that are coming. Yes, it's only 30-some degrees, but it, uh, compared to last month, this is great. God, we, we thank you for, for the change of seasons, for the new life that's coming. God, I pray that today as we explore your word, that your spirit be here with us. <clears throat> that he reveals what you need to speak through your word today. That we understand the Bible, the, the scripture passage that we're reading, and understand you a little bit more and a little bit better. Pray that your spirit moves in each of our hearts, that he convicts us where we need to be convicted, that he asks us to change and where we need to be changed, but he gives us hope for the ability to do that changing. Lord, I pray that as I present what you've given to me this week, that I, that I only speak your words and not my own. Lord, I pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So many of you have been working through the Lent reading guide that you can find in your bulletins there. Um, you've been reading through the parallel Gospels, looking at uh, what the different stories in different Gospels. And today we're going to be talking about a scripture passage that you'll be reading this coming week. You'll notice once we read it as well that it's also a scripture passage that we looked at in Mark just a few weeks ago. We was, actually, I was originally planning on teaching out of Mark, and then I saw it come up there, and I'm like, no, that stinks. So I had to redo it and come back to, come back to Matthew. Uh, similar story, but we're going to come at it from a different perspective. And so I hope that you'll still be blessed by it. Today we're going to take a look at Peter. We're going to look at uh, how Peter succeeds. We're going to also look at how Peter fails, and we're going, to, we're going to ask ourselves why that happened. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, today we're going to look at Matthew 16. Starting at verse 13. I tell you the page number, but I really don't know it, so I can't do that. Sorry about that. Matthew 16, 13. Reads like this. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and the third day he will be raised raised to life. Now Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Jesus then said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the entire world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now this passage is fascinating to me. I've always really liked it. Probably, partially, because I've always really liked Peter. Peter's always been really relatable to me. He's somebody that I get, that I understand, that I really like. You see, Peter is an all-in kind of guy. He either goes all-in, does something to its fullest, to its best, or he doesn't have, want to have anything to do with it at all. One of the best examples of this is actually at the story of, of Jesus at the Last Supper when he's washing his disciples' feet. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, uh, Jesus, they're at the Last Supper, they're having dinner together, and he gets up and he begins to wash each of his disciples' feet. Now, at this time, for that to happen is way, way, way outside the social norms, right? Your rabbi, your teacher, your master does not get down and wash your dirty feet. And so Jesus gets up and does it anyway, and he starts working his way around the table. And he gets to Peter. And if you're familiar with the story, when he gets to Peter, Peter says, "Mm -mm. Nope, you're not going to wash my feet. That's not how this works. You're Jesus, I'm Peter. If anything, I'm going to wash your feet. But Jesus tells Peter, no, that I have to wash your feet. And he gives a number of reasons why. And for those of you who are familiar with the story, what happens then? Peter says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then wash everything. Wash my whole body. I can just imagine Jesus sighing and going, come on, Pete. That's not how this is supposed to work. They probably said that. They were probably close enough to call him Pete. But, you know, doesn't say it, but we can figure. Right? Peter is all or nothing. If you're going to wash my feet, then wash all of me. Or you're not washing any of me. He has a hard time with this middle ground thing. Peter's also a little impulsive. Sometimes acting before he thinks. Which on occasion is good. Actually, in another story, they, uh, they're, all the disciples are in a boat. They look across the water and they see someone walking towards them. And they, Peter calls out, is it you, Jesus? Jesus says, yes, that it is. And he says, well, if it's you, then tell me to come. Tell me to come walk. So Jesus does. He says, all right, come on. And Peter doesn't think twice about it. He jumps out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus, which is great, right? He gets to walk on water. It's actually in that case when he starts thinking that things get weird, right? So he walks on water and all of a sudden he starts thinking, you know what? People aren't supposed to be able to walk on water. And he kind of freaks out a little bit. He goes, not only are they not supposed to walk on water, but it's a little wavy out here. And so he starts to sink. Sometimes when Peter acts without thinking, it's a good thing. Other times it's not. And we're going to see both of those things today in this passage. So first, Jesus asked, so this, this is where the stage is set. where We see Jesus and his disciples walking outside of a town called Caesarea in Philippi. It's a Greek town. It's towards the northern part of Israel. And they're walking around, and Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And we can see from the context that, that apparently this was a kind of hot topic at the time. People were talking about it. The, the, the place where they were, the fact that they were at by this Greek town, probably means that not only the Jewish people were talking about it, but the Greeks were too. That Jesus had started to make a, 
make a name for himself, and people were wondering, who is this guy? And so Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you know what? There are actually three theories on that. Let me explain them to you. First, they said, some people think you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist came before Jesus, and he kind of prepared the way for Jesus. He kind of laid out the path, uh, kind of set the stage for Jesus, if you will. But he had gotten into a little bit of trouble with Herod. Herod and him didn't get along so well, and Herod had him beheaded, killed. So some people thought that Jesus was just John the Baptist back from the dead. Now, that would be a pretty big deal, right? If John had just been killed and now he's back from the dead, that's, a, that's big news. Now, I realize that there is a story as well in which John the Baptist and Jesus are together at the same time. It's when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. But not everyone knew about that, so this was still a running theory. Other people said that Jesus was Elijah. Now, this is also a big deal, because Elijah is one of the Jewish superstars, if you will. He gets to go in right there with Moses and David and Solomon. Elijah was one of the first prophets, and he was probably one of the greatest prophets. He's a big deal. Elijah not only, did, not only preached for a long time in Israel, but he also did a lot of miracles. He performed a lot of signs and wonders. He healed people. He, he created more food out of little bit food, through the Holy Spirit, of course. He did a lot of the things that Jesus did. So to be called Elijah is high praise. But there was one other theory. There were still others that said he's like Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So yes, that, that's down a couple notches from the others. But it's still a significant person, a prophet. To be one of the prophets in line with Jeremiah is still up there. It's still a big deal. So there were varying ideas of Jesus' importance. Some people thought he was extremely important. Some people thought he was important, but not so much, as, as much as others. They all saw him as being somebody that's significant, somebody that should be listened to or followed. But there's one key characteristic about all three of these viewpoints that unites them together. And that's the fact that they're all wrong. They all had missed something incredibly significant. They all saw that Jesus was somebody to be followed and somebody to be listened to and somebody to be that, that you can trust, trust to tell you good things. But they may have missed, or they not may have, they did miss the most important part about Jesus. They missed who he really was. And so Jesus begins to wonder if his disciples did too. Had they missed the important thing? And so he asked them, who do you say that I am? I get that these other people say this, these things, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Now imagine at this time that all of... Now this isn't what the Bible says, but this is just my imagination. I imagine at this time that they were put on the spot a little bit. That John elbowed James and said, what do you think? Right? They were like, they're wondering. They didn't know what to say. But Peter steps up. And he nails it, right? He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He gets it. He just hits it right on the head. Everyone else seemed to be missing it. But to Peter's credit, he had gone all in on Jesus and seen him for who he really was. My favorite part about this, though, is how Jesus describes how he got there. Jesus says, great job, Peter. You got it. You nailed it. Well done. But realize that you didn't get here because of a series of great arguments. You didn't get here because you're smarter than everybody else. You didn't get here because you read the Old Testament so well that you figured it out. He said it wasn't be you didn't get it because of you at all. It had actually nothing to do with you. This wasn't revealed to you through 
uh, human argument or revealed to you by flesh and blood. It was revealed to you by God himself through the Holy Spirit. You see, at this moment, Peter was in tune with the Holy Spirit. And he could see something that much of the rest of the world, if not the entire rest of the world, was missing. And Jesus gives him some really high praise because of it, doesn't he? He tells him, says, now you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it. He sets Peter up as being a pretty big deal. He gives him some really high praise. I have to imagine that Peter must have felt amazing at this point, at the top of the world. Right? For every disciple anywhere to get that kind of praise from your rabbi is a huge deal. He had to be flying high. He must have felt like that, I mean, the best, the, the, talk about a spiritual high, he would have been at the top. Because he had seen something that everyone else had missed. He had found something that very, other, very few other people had. And I can't imagine that, was phenomenal for, that wasn't phenomenal for him. But then comes the next part. Jesus goes on to explain what the purpose of the Messiah is. He explains Passion Week, right? He says, I, I must suffer many things at the hands of the teachers, the chief priests, the elders, and actually, eventually, I'm going to die. I'll be killed. Now, he does say, then be raised to life again in three days. But it seems to me, as throughout all Scripture, he says that line over and over again, and the disciples stop listening at the, you're going to be killed part. They seem to always miss the end, and that's no different here with Peter. Peter's listening to this. He's hearing what Jesus says about how he's going to suffer, how he's going to go through these things, and it's not sitting well with him. Something's not right there. Because Peter has just realized something very significant. He knows who Jesus is, and he thinks he knows what that must mean. He realized who Jesus is, and he's not going to let anything happen to him. And so Peter does what he thinks is best. And honestly, if we really look at it, we can't blame him, can we? You see, Peter's trying to do the right thing. If Jesus is the Messiah, then most people would think that it would be a good thing to protect him, or to defend him, or perhaps even die for him. And we know Peter is willing to do that. During the Last Supper, Peter declares that even if everyone else will fall away, he will not. He's willing to to die if need be. Now, that doesn't work out so well for Peter, but we know that he's willing. At least from moment to moment. In this circumstance, Peter is trying to defend the Messiah. And we would say that's a good thing. Now, if we had historical context, we would say it's even more of a good thing. So during this time, during the time of Jesus, there were a number of people who rose up to claim to be messiahs. There were probably about seven. There may have even been more. A few of them are even listed in the Bible if you know where to look. Now each of these people would come up. They would claim to be the Savior of Israel. They would claim to be the Messiah of Israel. They would gather together a group of disciples, just like Jesus did. They would, they would work to, to, to overthrow the Roman government. Uh, and that's, that's, That happened. There were seven of them. Peter would have seen these. Now, there's a big difference between these messiahs and Jesus. And one of the, well, first of all, the fact that they're not actually the messiahs is a big difference. But the other difference is that they were mostly military-minded. You see, Israel at this time is occupied by Rome, and there were many people in the Israelite 
world that didn't like that, that thought that what the Messiah would do is kick out Rome. That was what it was supposed to be. They were supposed to come in, ride in, get rid of Rome, and reestablish the Israeli empire, or Israeli nation. And we see actually through that play itself out as people are looking at Jesus. They're expecting him someday to rise up and kick out Rome, right? We see that over and over again. Now, each of these other messiahs, if you will, um, would have little uprisings. Their disciples would rise up. They'd fight the Roman government for a little bit. And then the Roman government would come and squash them because they didn't particularly care for people trying to oust them. Makes sense, right? And so what we had then is that these people would come up and the leader, the person claiming to be messiah, would either be killed or he'd be arrested. And then his disciples would either run away or they'd fight and also be killed or arrested. And so Peter has seen that happen a number of times up to this point. And so what he is saying, he says, I will not be cowardly. What happened to them is not going to happen to you. I will make sure of that. I'll fight if I need to. Be, if I need to. This will not happen to you, he's, Peter says. And honestly, if we didn't know what happened next, if we didn't know the, uh, the rest of the story, most likely we would give Peter a pat on the back, wouldn't we? If you're saying, Peter, you know who Jesus is and you're willing to die for him, you would say, good job, Pete, right? Well done. That's exactly what you should be doing. But that isn't what he was supposed to be doing, right? We do see the end. We do see the fallout. So Peter makes this statement. He says, this will not happen to you. And this is what the fallout is. Jesus turns and looks at him. And I think that's significant because we had this high and now Jesus is looking directly at him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I can't imagine what that would have felt like for Peter going from here to, oh my, in one step. And I think Jesus realizes that Peter had good intentions. He says, get behind me, Satan, because you're a stumbling block. I know you think you're doing what's right and I care about that, but you totally missed it. Only a few passages before, Peter is in tune with the Holy Spirit and he gets it right. And then he relies on what he thinks, or in defense, what the world thinks is right, and finds out that the devil is actually working through him. Jesus says to him, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now I think that if we stop here and look closely at our lives, this is where we can relate with Peter. This is where we can fall into the same trap. Where we can think we're doing one thing. Perhaps even something that is for God. And then realize that we're actually being influenced by the devil himself. You see, Peter had found something that no one else had found. He was riding high and he took that success and then carried it out to its logical worldly conclusion. If Jesus is the Messiah, then I must A, B, C, D. And in the midst of doing that, completely misses the point. And this is, where we, this is where we can get in trouble. Because like Peter, when we in our lives get something right for God, it feels great, doesn't it? It feels awesome. It feels like we're on a high. Right? If you care for somebody in just the way that they need to be cared for, if you realize you've met someone need, someone's needs in the exact way that they needed, you walk away from that feeling pretty great, don't you? It feels pretty nice. Or if you understood something about God that you've never understood before, that moment in which it's like, aha, 
And pieces fall into place. And, the, and you can see things differently than you've ever seen them before. Again, you feel pretty great about that, don't you? Or when you serve someone in just the way that they needed to be served, or you resist that temptation that's gotten you so many times before. It's a spiritual high. It's something that we feel great about. Now, don't get me wrong. Those feelings of fullness are good things, and we should seek them out. I hope that you all experience them more and more in your lives. But we do need to be careful that we aren't deceived into thinking that everything related to those feelings is what God wants for us. Because when we find something that feels really full, the temptation is to build everything else around that. Whether it be in our devotional lives, or in our ministry lives, and yes, you all have ministry lives, or in our personal lives. We find something and we hold on to it and we carry it out to its worldly conclusion. When we get something very right because the Holy Spirit has led us to it, then we can then pick up the mantle and bring it down to its end. Just like Peter did. Peter did what he thought was best, forgetting that he should have been searching for what God said was best. And often we do the same thing, don't we? And Jesus is very clear here. That's not going to work. After Peter's mistake, Jesus goes on to explain to the crowd what it means to follow him. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple... And so if you're here today and you're a person that wants to be a disciple of Jesus, this is for you as well. If anyone wants to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. You must put aside the things that you think are right for the things that God says are right. And yes, that does mean that it may hurt, that it may be hard. Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. And follow him. So we realize that in order to follow Jesus, we need to know where he's going. And in order to know where he's going, we need the Holy Spirit, just like Peter did. Now let's be honest, that's really hard, isn't it? Exceptionally hard. The rest of this passage is really, really difficult. Because we want to do things for our own benefit, don't we? I do. I like to do things that are going to benefit me. It's a lot easier to do things that are going to have some kind of payout for me than things that don't or that I can't perceive right away. If you don't believe me, how easy is it to do something, a project, anything? How easy is it to do something that you think is significant and get no recognition for it? That's tough, right? We don't like that. How easy is it to do the right thing even, you, even, even when you know you could slide under the radar. Especially if that right thing will put, be to your detriment or put you in a tough situation. There's a phone call that you have to make that could really rebuild a relationship, but you're like, yeah, but I could just not for this week. No one will notice. No one will know. It's, we'd love to be able to sit here this morning and say, of course I would do the right thing if the right thing was apparent, but when it really comes down to it, it's really hard, isn't it? How easy is it to give something up that you perceive as good, even when you feel like God may be saying to set it down? All of these things and, and any other things that you're thinking about as well are incredibly hard, aren't they? 
God's ways are not our ways. And many times it's much easier for us to do things the way we think is best and not spend time looking for what, where God is leading. It's much easier that way. But there are consequences for that kind of thinking. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You see, when we do things in the way our humanness or in the way of the world or with human concerns at the forefront of our minds, we will not find the life that God promised us. And honestly, if we stop and really look at things, we we know that to be true. So the world says that when someone slights you, you're owed. Right? That things need to be made right before there can be any kind of reconciliation at all. It's what the world says is right. But if you've been in a situation like that, how does that feel? Being owed. Do you find life there? Do you find life in the hatred or in the revenge, the need for revenge or in the need to be paid back? Is there life or is there just emptiness? Whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. So the world tells us as well that we need to accumulate more and more stuff. That stuff is the way that that we're going to feel full and happy. You just watch TV for a little bit and that's what all the ads will tell you. That if you just had this one more thing, then life would be complete or full. But any of you out there who have been chasing down that one more thing, has it ever fulfilled you? Have you ever gotten the one thing and gone, good, I'm done. I've achieved it. I've made it. No, it's an emptiness every time we get there. Whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. The world tells us that life is about looking out for numero uno, me. That I take care of me first, and then if there's anything left over, then maybe I'll share it with the rest of you. That I, that I, I feed into myself, myself, myself first, and then give out to everyone else. But if you've ever been caught in a cycle of constant self-fulfillment, you'll know that there's no life there either. Whoever seeks to save their, their, save their lives will lose it. Doing things that may seem right to us or to the world will not lead us to the fullness that God promises us. Only following the Holy Spirit will do that. And yes, that may mean missing out on some of the things the world says we need. You may not make as much money. You may not get as much credit from other people as you would otherwise. You may have to, at a time, one time or another, if God leaves, give, give up leadership or control of something. You may have to do one or a combination of all of those things to find the, fu- the fullness of God, the fullness of life God promises us. And like we've already said, honestly, that is incredibly difficult. It takes a lot of faith for us to accept that God's way really is the best way. Now, sure, we can sit here and give it lip service. If I were to ask you on a poll on the way out before I finish to say, hey, do you really believe that God's way is the best way to live? Most of us would probably say, of course I do. Maybe you wouldn't. But when push comes to shove, do we really believe that? I'll tell you, I don't always. And there are parts of the Bible that are really hard for me to believe that's the case. God says, don't worry about anything. Really? Nothing? No, nothing. God says, forgive everyone. Really? 
Now, honestly, the people that Jesus was talking to in this passage weren't any different. And that's why he says, what good would it be for you to gain the entire world and yet forfeit your soul? Because he knows that we can seek out the things of this world and they may provide us temporary happiness, but they will not sustain us. They will not find, we will not find life that way. Jesus says instead, when we lose our lives, and in this case that does not mean dying. It means that when we give up trying to follow the way of the world or we stop following our own logic to its own conclusions, when we deny ourselves, we find life. We find fulfillment. We find what God has promised. And that's really where all this difficulty comes from. Because self-denial is an incredibly difficult thing. Because in this case, it requires us to give up control to another. Give up control of our lives to another. Now, I realize that other is the Holy Spirit, but still, that's tough, right? We don't like doing that. I want to control me. That's nice. That's easier. I know who I am, maybe. But if we deny ourselves and don't follow just what the world says, we're forced then to trust that God's ways are best. It forces us to trust that he has our best interests in mind. But we know that God's way is not always the easiest way. And so it's far, far, easier, far easier for us to say that we trust God than to actually trust him. Some examples of that. And I already mentioned one. If we go back a few chapters in Matthew here, you'll see a passage that says, Do not worry about anything. Do not worry about what you will wear. Do not worry about what you will eat or drink. Nothing. Because God knows what you need and he'll take care of you. That's a tough one, right? My guess is that most of you worry about something. Probably worried about something today. Maybe even worried about how much you worried about something, right? It can be, it's, it's incredibly difficult. How do we deny ourselves to lean into that promise to say that we really do trust that God will always take care of us? That's tough. Not so easy, right? God says to forgive everyone. And some of you may be going, okay, I can do that. I can forgive people. So I don't have to see them after I forgive them, right? Maybe not. God says to love everyone. All right, I'm still on board. God says even to love your enemies. That's tougher, but I, maybe. But then he finishes it off by saying, love even those who persecute you. What that would mean then, and honestly, this is tough, right? Especially if you've watched the news lately. Can we really love ISIS, the people that are doing the terrible things to people across the world? Because that's what that would mean, right? Love your enemies, love those who persecute you, love those who hate you. Well, that's them, right? That's not easy, is it? If you have any doubt that they're included in that message, you just look at Jesus when he's being crucified. The people that are actually nailing him to the cross, they're killing him. They've beaten him. They've mocked him. They've done all of these things. What does he say? He looks down at them and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. If Jesus can love in that circumstance, there's no exception in ours. But that's incredibly difficult. God says in the Bible to pray continuously, to pray without ceasing, to pray always. Some of us struggle to pray for a few minutes, right? All throughout Scripture, we see God promising us that His ways are best. That the life with Him and in the Spirit produces a fullness and flourishing found nowhere else in the world. 
So much so that if we even that if we lose our life, we deny ourselves the things that we think are best, we will actually find a truer, fuller life than we can find anywhere else. And so the big question then before we leave today is how do we even begin to live that way? It's one thing to say, of course we need to deny ourselves and follow God. It's, an all, it's another thing altogether to actually do it. When we stop and look at our faith lives, my guess is that the task of complete denial looks impossible. There's some of you that, when you heard me say that God says not to worry about anything, you go, oh, that's no way, I can't do that. I wake up worrying. I worry all the time. It's, my, it's the way I'm wired. I'm always nervous or worrying about something. You're saying to completely deny that seems absolutely impossible. I get that. I get that. Or others of you are saying, you know what? If you knew what this person did to me, if you knew how badly they've hurt me, hurt me and how they continue to hurt me, that you would know that there is absolutely no way that I can forgive them. Or there's others of you that are saying, you know what? I can't pray for five seconds let alone pray the entire day. I get that too. It's hard. It's hard. And that's why we need to begin the same way Peter did. By listening and understanding where the Holy Spirit is leading us. God knows what is possible for us and responds appropriately. So find that place in your life in which you know things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Where you know that there's something more but you can't find it. There's something more significant that it feels empty and you know there must be more than that. And if that isn't immediately evident to you, pray that God reveals it to you. And then begin to give it over to Him. Perhaps there is someone that's hurt you. Perhaps there's someone that's done something terrible and you just need to begin to deny yourself the need to be repaid or the need for revenge or that hatred that you have. And begin to forgive. Maybe it's at your work where you have to deny the fact that you really just want more and more and more and more. Or in other words, that you're greedy. Or your unhealthy need for recognition. Or the fact that you need to be better than others. And begin to trust that God will give you what you need and will also protect your reputation. Same applies at school. Maybe it's denying your need to always be right and start listening to your spouse. That's my wife's favorite one. I should do better at that myself. God calls us towards perfection. He does. If you read John, he says, be perfect as I am perfect. Oof. Tough. He calls us to work to be in constant relationship with him. But he understands our limitations. He understands that we can't get there all at once. So I want to challenge you to find one area of your life. One area in your life that you know that things aren't the way that they should be. Just one. And over the next week or month or year, whatever, however long it takes, begin to give that over to God. It's the one area that you've, tried, you've been trying to save your own life. The one area that you've been keeping from God and doing your own thing. I want to challenge you to little by little, seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and begin to give more and more of control of it over to Him. Little by little, as much as you can give. But keep working forward.
and just see what happens. See what happens. See if it, God has said that if you, if, you, if you deny yourself and follow me, you will find life. Give it a try. Couldn't hurt, right? If you already know that there's something missing, if you already know there's something empty or that, that could be fuller, try incrementally to give it over to God. For he has promised that those who lose their life for his sake will find it. Let's pray. Father God, all of us here have areas in our life in which we've tried to save ourselves, in which we've tried to be the gods of our own life, in which we've tried to find fulfillment in what we think is best. Some of us here are even doing things we think are for you, but, we, but if we were really to search, we'd realize they weren't. God, I pray that you reveal to each of us where those areas are and give us the strength to start handing them over to you. We pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.